Um, like I was just saying, where we, Geo began the siege of Jerusalem, um, we are going to continue in, um, where are we, Ezekiel 5. But before we get to Ezekiel, as I was kind of reading through this, because for me, the hardest part is, is trying to figure out what the Lord wants me to say, right? Because there's so much there, especially Ezekiel. You could kind of hang on a verse and, and go on it for so long. But um, it's, we're getting into the, the parts of the siege. There's a lot going on. This isn't the best kids study. Um, there's a lot of negative things that are happening. We get to see some real um, brutality to the Israelites, unfortunately. But in, in order to understand this better, I think it's important to take a step back. So I've never done this before, but I'd like to go back to Leviticus 26. And um, I'm going to read the whole entire chapter to you. <laughs> it will only take a couple minutes, but I think you'll see what the Lord showed me as I studied. So again, we're going to be in Leviticus 26. I'll give you guys a minute to get there. All right. Starting off in uh, chapter, or verse 1 there. You shall not make idols of your, for yourselves, neither a carved image or a sacred pillar. You shall... Uh, shall you rear up for yourself, nor shall you set up engraved stone in your land or bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If, um, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing and you shall eat bread to full and dwell in the land safely. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid." I will rid the land of evil beasts and so, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred shall chase 10,000 to fight your enemies, 10,000 to fight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you for I will look on you favorably. You make and make you fruitful, multiply, and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. My, I will set my tabernacle among you. My soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. For I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you shall not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke, and made you walk upright. And then we get to the but. But if you do not obey me, and you do not observe all these commandments, if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgment, so that you do not perform all of my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you. Wasting disease and fever shall consume your eyes and cause sorrow of the heart, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemy shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by, the, by your enemies. Those you hate shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will pursue I will punish you seven times more for your sin. I will break 
the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Then if you, do not, if you walk in contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sin. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highway shall be desolate. And if these things you are not... I'm sorry. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you. I will punish you yet seven times for your sin. I will bring the sword against you and you will be executed. Vengeance of the covenant, the vengeance of the covenant, and then gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy." When I have cut off your supply of when I have cut off the supply of your bread, ten women shall bake your bread, one in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat, but not be satisfied. After this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, I will also walk contrary to you in fury. Sorry. We're almost there. And I Even I will chasten you seven times for your sin. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and your sons shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. My soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aroma. I will bring the land desolate. I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall also be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out the sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste, and the land shall enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it lies desolate, you are in your enemy's land, and the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest, and the time it did not rest on your Sabbath when you dwelled in it. And for those of you who are left, I will, send, I will send faintness in their hearts and the lands of their enemies and the sound of a shaking leaf shall cast them to flee and they shall flee as though fleeing from the sword and they shall fall when no one pursues and they shall stumble over one another as were before a sword and no one pursues and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall not perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those who are left shall waste away in their iniquities and the enemy's land also in their father's iniquities and which are with them and they shall waste away. And then another but. But if they confess their iniquities and the iniquities of their father with their unfaithfulness, which they were unfaithful to me and that they have walked contrary to me, and that I have also walked contrary to them, and they have brought me into the land of the enemies. If the uncircumcised hearts are humbled, then they accept their guilt. I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham. I will remember the land, and the land shall also be left empty by them, and I will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them." 
They will accept their guilt because they despise me. Judgments because their soul abhors my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of the enemy, I will not cast... I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them, to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, from whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, for I, I am the Lord. These are the statutes, the judgments, the law, which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. So I think it's a good reminder, like, uh, like I was saying, um, we've, we've been in Ezekiel now, we got through um, Exodus, but we, it, it's easy to forget. Yes, cognitively we remember, but when we read through all the, the covenant that the Lord actually met with the Israelites about and how he wanted to establish them as his people and he wanted to be their God and be among them um, is how he worded it there. That, that's an amazing relationship. And as what we're going to read today, it doesn't seem like that relationship is there, but it actually is. And I think it's a good reminder to be able to read um, uh, Ezekiel 5 as we're going to go through. But then he talks about, and we're going to see some of this in Ezekiel 5, if you don't obey my covenant, what's the consequences? And it's about knowing that cost. And that's kind of one thing we're going to talk about uh, today is knowing the cost because as John 14, it talks about knowing the cost. And um, uh, we'll get into it when we get there. I'm sorry. So the, um, the heading or the, the title for today, tonight is A Call to Repentance. A Call to Repentance. And it might not seem like that as we're talking about a siege um, as Geo started in chapter 4. But as we move into chapter 5, I think you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. There's going to be a lot more on this siege, so this is just a small piece. But um, let's start in verse 1, in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 1. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard, and take scales to weigh and divide the hair. We'll stop there. So we see, just in these few words, there's actually a lot there. Um, Do you think in their time, do they think they normally took a sword to, to shave any body part? No, right? So the sword's important. It, it's meaningful. Um, that, that's the sword. That's the judgment that God is bringing upon the Israelites, right? That God is bringing upon Jerusalem. So that the judgment is going to be delivered by Nebuchadnezzar, as we already know, um, as Adam's intro to the, to the book. But then we see he's supposed to take it and and pass it over his head and his beard. But what is Ezekiel before he became a prophet? He was a priest, right? Are priests supposed to shave their head and shave their... their... No. Have anybody ever seen um, an Orthodox Jew? Yeah, they have the long, the men have the long hair that comes down because they never shave the side, right? As we know in Leviticus 21, 5, it says, they shall not make any bald places on their head, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. So this is a direct, um, just like uh, Gio was saying in uh, chapter 4, he wanted to cook with um, uh, human feces, right? 
And uh, that was a direct violation to what it was to be a part of the priesthood. That was unclean, right? So Ezekiel asked, can I not do that? And God, God granted him that and gave him the cow instead, right? Cow dung, which is <laughs> better. But, so this is a similar thing. And Ezekiel knows what God's asking, but he goes ahead and does it anyway, right? Because this isn't um, about a purity thing. This is just about how that appearance. And God, as a priest, or as a prophet, is asking him to do this. And, you know, a prophet in that time, all the people knew a prophet. So all the people knew a priest. Remember, he's in captivity, so there's not that many people, and he's out there. So I'm sure there's people that are wondering what Ezekiel going to do next, because as we learned in chapter 4, he's laid on his wait, his left side for 390 days, and then he was on his right side for another 40 for Judah's iniquities, and now he's shaving his beard and his head, and he's got a scale out. And that scale shows that perfect discrimination that God has for judgment, right? We can't discriminate. We don't know the heart. We can't be able to judge like God, and he's going to judge because the hair represents the people, uh, the people of Israel, the, those that are going to be in Jerusalem. So let's see what he does with the scale. Uh, Verse two, you shall burn with fire one third in the midst of the city with the days of the, I'm sorry, when the days of the siege are finished, you shall take one third and strike it around with the sword and one third you shall cast into the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. You shall take a small number and bind them into the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there, a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. So we see here, he he gets the scale out and he measures three different different thirds, right? We see one is, remember, because he made the model. Do you guys remember that from, it wasn't last week because the barbecue, but the week before. So he made a model of Jerusalem and he had the siege equipment against it and he had to lay before the the model. And now in the model, he's telling him to put the hair, right? To burn the hair in the middle of the city at the end of the siege. So I was kind of curious and I did some research trying to figure out what that really is representing. And there's a few ideas. Um, it could be just the, the people are had a great famine now because they've been in siege. So they're all dying. And it could be the, them burning the bodies. It could be at the end, basically, almost a third is dead and they're burning those bodies so they don't get sick from them. Um, but it's not exactly known. It, it Definitely a third is, is dead in the, in, in the fire, though. And then one third is going to be um, stricken down with a sword. So once the siege actually happens, one third of, of the Israelites in Jerusalem are going to die by sword. And then that final one third is going to probably scatter out as the whole thing's happening and try to get away, but God's going to send the sword after them, right? And then we see in uh, verse three, it says he take, take a few hairs and put them into the binding of his garment. This is very special. This is that remnant that we hear about all throughout the Bible. This is God's holding a few that are gonna continue the lineage and be his people. Most likely it's those who truly love him and he's protected those. But 
either they're going to be in captivity or, or something like that. So they're still going to have hardships. They're not getting away from anything, but God's going to protect them so that he still has his people. And then he's going to take a few more hairs and just throw them into that fire because there is a few, we go through it, that a few more Jews that got out that are going to die. And that's that representation of dying of, of that, that lineage. And let's, uh, I'm sorry. Um, Sorry, I lost my place there for just a second. Oh yeah, that's that lineage that's gonna die off. But there's, um, I think Jeremiah says it a little bit more clear. Jeremiah 15, two, he, or God tells Jeremiah in a different way. And he says, it shall be, if they, they say to you, where should we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord, such as for death, to death, such as for sword to sword, such as for famine to famine, such as for captivity to captivity. Simple explanation of what, what's going to happen to the people. Um, it's sad, but this is um, what the, what, what's going to happen to the people and what they've actually brought upon themselves for breaking that covenant. Let's continue on in verse five. Thus says the Lord, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. So we'll stop here for just a second. This, is, this caught my attention. It says, this is Jerusalem. We don't really hear Jerusalem referred to Jerusalem like that. We don't say this is running springs. So God's making a statement here. Jerusalem's obviously important to God right? He brought the people here. This was supposed to be the, their city, right? And then it says um, that he set them in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. So God put her in, in the center, right? In the midst. And there's a lot of talk about in the center as a geographical like center. It's, uh, it's the center of the world. All points meet to Jerusalem at the same, at the same distance. But I don't think that's really what God's talking about here. I think he's talking about the heart. He wanted to be them to be the center, to be the example to the rest of the world of what it was like to follow God, right? What it was like to be God's people, what it was like to have God walk among you, as he said there, to have his, his tabernacle be there among you and to have his presence actually within your people. That's a pretty awesome statement when you think about it. And that's who they were supposed to be. That was what God designed them. That's why he put them where they were. But I think it even goes a little bit deeper because Jerusalem in, in uh, Hebrew is, uh, your, I don't say it right, but uh, Jerusalem, yeah, Jerusalem. Anyway, Jerusalem means uh, flow. Siloam means peace or complete or wholeness. So like a, a direct translation would be uh, pointing the way of completeness or um, uh, more precise or eloquent would it be possession of peace. So God's possession of peace. But I do like the flow because it says um, uh, that it means flow, that first part of it. And if you remember in Revelations 22, how when God comes back and it's going to be the new temple there in Jerusalem, how from the throne room will be the flow of what? Living water, right? So it's that flow coming out of Jerusalem. God chose Jerusalem Jerusalem was special. 
just because God chose it and God put them there. So this was them violating that covenant, that promise and what he created and what he intended. It wasn't just about people worshiping someone else. This was the, it, it crushed God's big picture. And it's not the first time humanity did that, right? Um, but let's continue on in verse six. She rebelled against me, or rebelled. She rebelled, as in Jerusalem, rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the other nations, against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they refuse my judgments, and they have not walked in my, my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgment in your midst, in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which will never do, I will never do again because all of your abominations. We'll stop there. So that's, that's a lot, right? Um, it, it's amazing to think about who God intended Israel to be and who God intended Jerusalem to be, right? And he set her before the midst is what he's saying there. And he set her before the other nations. And then what does it say? It says that Israel that um, Jerusalem is more sinful, has more abominations than all the nations around her. They don't even listen to the judgments of God, but more than that, Israel doesn't even listen to the judgments of the secular um, countries and nations around her. She has more sin and more abominations than all of the secular countries when she's supposed to be that special, unique, God's chosen people. That's sad. I, I can't imagine what it's going to be like for the people, um, what they're going through. And just to hear this, I mean, this is something that Ezekiel is telling the people that God told him. This has got to be like a knife in their heart. I can't, I can't even fathom the pain. If they're willing to accept the truth, it would be the biggest question. And then I, I think it's, it's um, shocking just what the Lord says there in verse 9. I will do... And I will do among you what I have never done, the like of which I will never do again. That shows just God's own sorrow and the fact that he has to follow through with what he said he would do because of their lack of follow through on their commitment. And it goes just a little bit deeper. If you, I don't want to get too much into uh, the next couple chapters because it still talks so much about um, the siege, but this um, abominations and this sinfulness goes all the way up to the leadership. If you just want to turn a couple pages over to Ezekiel um, 8. Ezekiel, uh, the Lord is giving Ezekiel a vision here, and uh, it's the 70 elders of Israel. So we'll pick it up in verse 12. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? That's crazy, right? Every man in the room of his idols, for they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, they blame the Lord instead of taking responsibility for what they are doing. Were they supposed to have idols? 
No, they were supposed to have one God, right? That living, true God. They weren't supposed to create idols. It was very clear in, um, uh, just like we read in uh, Leviticus, um, they weren't supposed to put any other idols before them. And it's shocking to even think that they would want to. They know the power of the Lord. They experience it. They have the temple. They get to actually commune with him. But yet they're, they're putting everything else aside and having those idols. Um, let's continue in verse uh, 10. gets a little, little harder. I'm sorry. Therefore the fathers <coughs> shall eat their sons in your midst. And the sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgment among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds. So obviously they're, they're in siege. Their bread, their food, everything's cut off, so they're starving. As Gio was saying, they only had little bits of measured bread and water that they could eat. So they, I can't even imagine the kind of hunger that they're feeling, but um, as a father, I, I can't even fathom the idea of of having one of my kids. That's such a sinful and wrongful thing to do, I think, um, obviously. But um, there are, it just shows where their, their heart truly is, how selfish and how they're only desiring things uh, for their own... Um, uh, their, their own uh, they're look, only looking out for themselves. They're not looking out for those around them as their kids, I mean, I would hope that I would go before any of my kids, that's for sure. But this isn't the first time we've seen this. And um, this is talked about in, in 1 Kings 6.29. Um, we wouldn't need to go there just yet, but there's, um, they're under siege. It's um, two women are, are talking and they're hungry and they're talking about their sons, right? And they're saying that um, we'll have your son tonight and tomorrow or whenever we get hungry again, we'll have my son. And so the first lady, they, they boil their son and they have him. And then whenever the, it says tomorrow, but when they get hungry again, she goes to him and says, where's your son? And the other lady hides the son. And it's what's shocking to me the most is what we're going to pick up here in 29. So we boiled him, and on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Now it happened that the king heard the words of the woman, and, and he tore his clothes. I think, I'm sorry, it's missing something there. But the woman sees the king walking along the wall, probably assessing what was besieged. And um, she sees the king, and she says, Sir, king, and he, she addresses him and she, she, he asks, how can he help her? And he, she is so taken by not being able to eat her friend's son that she takes it to the king to make a ruling on it. Find, find the boy so we can eat him. That's the mindset. That's what is, is so shocking. And again, in Lamentations, uh, Lamentations 4, these are the compassionate women, right, is how... They're, they're spoken of. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of their daughter of my people. I just wanted to show you where their heart is. They're, they're obviously an idolatrous nation now. They have all those gods that we've talked about before, Moloch and Baal, and we've talked about burning their own children to these gods that did nothing for them. And they put the, the real God, the God that wants that relationship, that is, is there and is present, but they put him to the wayside. 
Um, let's continue on in verse 11. Gets a little bit better. Um, Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with your disdainable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. One third of you shall die in the pestilence and... Sorry, one third of you shall die in the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. One third shall fall by the sword all around you. I will scatter the other third to the winds and draw out the sword after them. So we see a little bit of a repeat of what it said in in the beginning of the chapter, but in verse 11, I think it's interesting how he starts, therefore, as I live, again, defining himself as he is the living God. He is the only living God. So he can make that statement, says the Lord, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary. So they've got to have idols even in the sanctuary of the Lord, which is a crazy thought to uh, think that these people, these chosen ones of the Lord, are even putting idols of, of the other nations in the sanctuary of the Lord. I, it, it's, I, I don't have words for it. it. It's an abomination just as the Lord says. And because of that, we're going to see his anger in, in the rest, uh, the next four verses here. In verse 13, thus shall my anger be spent. I will cause my fury to rest upon them and I will be avenged. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I, ha- I am the Lord. Ha- I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and I will repro- a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all those who pass by. So we see the Lord's rightfully angry, right? They broke the covenant. They put other gods. That was one of his, I mean, that is the big uh, of the Ten Commandments, you know, hold no other God before me. I am the Lord, your God, right? Um, And they put another, other many gods before the Lord. So he has all right to be angry. But I think it's interesting here that he's, he lets them know that he's going to lay waste to, the nation, to hit their nation and all the nations around are going to see who they truly are because they know what they're supposed to be because they probably speak as a religious people, but now they just have many religions, many idols, right? And it's going to pick up that same idea in verse 15. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you. When I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes, I, the Lord, have spoken. So all the nations are, around them are going to know of their sin, of their trans, transgressions to the Lord, right? Then it continues in 16. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off the supply of bread. I will send against you famine and wild beast, and they will bereave you pestilence and blood shall pass through you and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. That's powerful, right? I can't imagine the wrath of God like that by sword, by beast, exactly how he spoke of it 800 and some years prior in, um, like we just read earlier. Um, but like I was saying, when I was going through this, I really felt like this was a chance for repentance, right? This was God... Uh, calling them 
to repentance. This was God reaching out. He's set Ezekiel as a prophet. He set Jeremiah as a prophet to come before them, to give them that chance, just as we read before in those last few verses. Call out and um, apologize for the iniquities. Ask for forgiveness for your fathers and for you, for what you've done, right? I can't help but look at it and, and think of myself and my own sin, right? What, what do I do? You know, because it's easy to always look at someone else's sin. And as I was doing that, I think we look at sin obviously different than they did in the, the, those times. We don't have those kind of idols that we, uh, at least not in America, other countries do for sure, um, and other cultures. But we don't really, as American, have that sense of idol but we actually do in different ways with our, our money and our jobs and our house and how things appear and look, and especially with social media and what kind of presence we want to just demonstrate of ourselves. But again, as I was looking at that sin, I, I found a, that we look at sin a few different ways. And I, um, there's two that I think that are ways that we look at sin that they're not Christian or they're backslidden, right? And that's those that just love their sin, right? They look forward to the indulgence. They look forward to just the relief of life and going into the sin, right? That's, that's being overtaken by the sin. That's not a believer mentality, right? And then there's those who just totally deny sin. I don't sin. I've never murdered anybody. I've never robbed a store. I've never done anything. I'm not a sinner. I'm perfect. I've lived my life perfect. I have always done the right. There's those, right? They're out there. It's crazy to think about from our perspective, but there's those. And then there's those that are um, uh, hate being exposed, right? They don't want to be exposed. So like calling out a brother or a sister, calling out a sister and being like, hey, I saw something last week or yesterday or whatever. They don't want that. They don't want that, uh, that sin to be revealed. They want it to keep, be a secret, right? And then there's the, the blame game, which I think is uh, our society today, right? It was mom's fault. It was dad's fault. It was whoever's fault but my own why I did what I did. I can never take responsibility for myself. And I think that really rings home to us because we, we experience that on a daily basis. And then there's the Eeyore, right? Those who are self-haters that I just constantly sin. I can never not sin. The world hates me. Everybody hates me because I'm such a sinner. God could never accept me because of my sin. And I'm just going to, I'm never going to get out of it. And I'm always going to be in it, right? And then there's the DYIers, which would be where I am. Um, The DYIers, they want to fix it, right? That's my response. Just ask my wife. That's how arguments start. You know, (laughs) I, I got it. I can fix it. But that's, that's not really the problem, right? It's, it's the sin. And when we think that we can fix it, it's all about our own energy. And that's not what salvation is. It has nothing to do with us. It's just accepting what Christ already did for us. And that's the important thing. That, that's where repentance comes in. Do you guys know what repentance means? What does repentance mean? Okay, turn away from sin. That's good. Anyone else? Okay, run away. Fast and far. <laughs> Anyone else? Change. I like that. So it's actually a change of mindset. So it's not having that mindset for the sin. So when you were sinning, great job, yeah. 
um, when you were sinning, you had that mindset of sin. But it's supposed to be when someone challenges you or when you realize it either by through the Lord um, or however, you're supposed to have that change of mindset. I no longer want to be associated with this and I'm going to change my mindset. And when I change my mindset, I change my action. That's repentance. That's what we're supposed to do. And I think... uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10 explains this well. For God, sorrow produced repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Um, I don't, you know, we can't judge, obviously. We don't know their mindset. But how do you think the Israelites who were in Jerusalem during this time, do you think they had that repentant heart? Or do you think they had that worldly sorrow? I think they had that worldly sorrow. Because obviously they're going to feel the siege. They're going to see the the death. They're going to see the destruction. But are they truly sorry for it happening? As in a repentant heart? Or are they just sorry that it happened? Because that's the worldly heart, right? We're just sorry that it happened. Can we just get over with it? Slap me on the hand. You know, I don't want to say any names about slapping on the hand this week. But um, just slap me on the hand and we can get on with, uh, with life. Because I'm not truly sorry. I'm just sorry you found out, right? I'm still going to continue through that. But that's not the kind of sorrow we're supposed to have. And I, I think First John 1, 9 um, kind of really brings this home. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're supposed to continuously confess our sins, right? Because we know that we're all sinners. Some of us might not even make it out of here before we sin again. That's just, that's just our nature. But our, our goal is to turn away, to repent, and to not have that nature, and, and to slowly put on the likeness of Christ, right? And that's what hopefully our goal is, and I think that's really what the Lord was speaking to me through Ezekiel 5. Um, that's all I have for you guys tonight, all right? Thank you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this chance just to come up here and speak about your word, Lord. I thank you for the people and the hearts here that are just willing to take time out of their day, Lord, and uh, just come and, and hear a little bit more about you. We know your word doesn't return void. Lord, we love you. And just as we sing, you are forever, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.